0: The SF Music Tech Summit, recorded live by MediaOne Audio Visual. To learn more about us, visit us online at MediaOneAudio.com.
1: This panel, this particular panel, is on uh, DIY instruments. And um, we're missing one of the participants, sadly, and that's uh, Sung Kim, who couldn't make it today. So the way we're going to do this is each of the participants is going to talk for a <laughs> a few minutes, maybe five to seven minutes or so. And then uh, we hope that these things will, will get livelier as we we move through because we don't wanna just have it be a sequence of presentations. So um, I'm gonna start off first with Tim Thompson who has a really interesting instrument in the display room. So you def- if you haven't had a chance to uh, walk up to this uh, windowed wall, Uh, please do so and check it out. But I'm going to let Tim talk about what he's up to and what he's thinking about in terms of building instruments.
2: Okay, so I've been building instruments uh, maybe for the last 10 years. Um, uh, My focus has been more building instruments for other people to use at events like Burning Man. Um, So I, I think of them as casual instruments that people can just walk up to and interact with and start making music. The the key for me is that um, the people that use them uh, who are often not musicians, uh, that they actually recognize that they're the ones creating the music and controlling it. Um, So for that reason I tend to to use notes rather than loops because if you start a loop then the person's not creating the content of that loop. But if you have an instrument that's creating notes, then they're much more in control of what's going on, so that's that's one of my focuses. Um, uh, Another of my focuses is 3D continuous input. Um, uh, Before there was the iPhone, I was using the Fingerworks uh, pads, which are multi-touch pads, and in addition to being multi-touch, so you can use all your fingers, um, the pads detected the area of your finger as well so that's a third dimension per finger so think of finger painting you you are very expressive when you're finger painting because you can you know smoosh your fingers down so your fingers are incredibly expressive if you have access to all of the you know their information and area of the finger or pressure whichever you have available or both is an important part of the instruments i build so i've been using the fingerworks pads for a while but they're very hard to obtain Um, when the Kinect came out last fall suddenly there's a $150 device anybody can buy and you can essentially use that as a 3D input device so what I've got set up in the the schmooze room uh, is this instrument that makes use of the Kinect another one of my focuses is to build instruments that are have a large visual impact Um, part of that is that if people are moving more, they're, they're feeling more expressive rather than, you know, having very small movements. So if you're, if you're moving, if your instrument is large and you have a lot of movement, the people using it feel more expressive, and it's also very compelling for an audience. So that's... And that's a key part of, you know, when you're building an instrument, what's the physical arrangement? So my focus is building large things... Um, and then as a, a casual being a casual instrument that people can just walk up to and, and use. So events like Burning Man, Lightning in a Bottle, those are key events for me for as testing grounds and, and you know it becomes the purpose for, for the instruments I create. It's nice to also have an instrument that as you learn it, you can do a performance with it. And again, the largeness of it enhances the performance. So those are my the things I reasons I build instruments and, and the factors I take into account.
1: Great. Um, well, make sure you get up and, uh, or get out and, and have a look at it. Uh, Tim, uh, how did you feel when Fingerworks uh, somehow
2: disappeared into the uh, I immediately Apple, bought Apple, every <laughs> Apple world? I immediately bought every Fingerworks pad I could get my hands on. Uh-huh. I have, like, 10 of them, Great. so I can use them. In I had an installation in 2009 at Burning Man, which was an 11-foot-high monolith, and it had four of these multi-touch pads in it. Um, it's a shame that Apple hasn't yet explicitly exposed the area finger area in their APIs on the iPad right. and the iPhone. Um, so it, I'm just dying for, you know, 3D finger-accessible input devices to become, you know, possible for ordinary people to, to get. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. have you tried out the little Magic Pad? Uh, the, the, that? Uh, it, the driver for it doesn't work on Windows. So, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, some of the some of the track pads and the the what do they call it, the Magic Pad or the yeah Magic little seventy-dollar pad. You can get the area. So I haven't seen many people using that. Yeah, this idea,
1: um, it's very critical here to talk about the sensing the amount of effort or force that one applies to the interface, and that's why he's talking about area, because it's one, you know, the finger kind of mashes itself flat and gets bigger. But in the end, I, I think we've done a number of experiments to see how much we can get out of area in a really, you know, what... We, we really would like to have pressure.
2: I'd like to have it's, both. Yeah. It, pressure and area. I agree. It's, it's, in it's interseparable in some way. When you, when you have only area, you can, you can get a lot of expressiveness just by flattening your, your fingers, and it's effortless. Mm-hmm. Not being a guitarist, I'm not really used to applying pressure. So for me, it was actually easier to be expressive with the area. But I'll take either and yeah, both, ideally. Yeah, well, I think both would <laughs> yeah.
1: be, be what we want. Right. But uh, we, we need to pay more attention, I believe, to that particular variable. Yeah. Well, Sasha, how about...
3: Can I quickly ask you a sure. uh, How did it go at Burning Man? Were you there to see how did people react? Oh, yeah, always What, there. what did people like? What didn't they like?
2: Oh, they, um, I mean, they loved it. They, they like the fact that they can, there's no threshold to learning. There's nothing to learn. They just wave their hands. Um, it's just fascinating to watch people as they learn how it works. Um, that's where I get my kicks, is, is watching people use it and then using that to inform future instruments. Yeah, I mean, what did you learn? Uh, this instrument is uh, several times more easy to use for casual users than anything I've done before. And I've done a number of things before, so... Um, this one just worked extremely well i mean there's very few things I would actually change about it um, well that's a
1: really interesting point so it it's easy to get going, but do you feel it will um, do you feel you could spend the rest of your life with it and that have a sort of limit no limit on virtuosity that you could develop? do you think it do you think it qualifies? Uh, well
2: there's definitely a, a lack of precision within each square. Um, you've got two octaves across. I can reduce that you know, to any, any number of pitches. So if you made it one octave, you could reproduce it. But it's not as an instrument. It's not suited or designed or appropriate for playing Bach or anything you know, like that. So it's a different style of instrument. Uh, but that said, the amount of control and the accuracy of the control you can get with the Connect, you definitely can create a virtuosic instrument out of it. My focus is more starting from the casual side and. and the virtuosity is, is less important. But I think you can definitely build an ins- a virtuosic instrument out of the connect. Okay. Well, time's flying. So Sasha, would you have something to
1: tell
0: us? Sure, um, my name is Sasha Leitman, and um, <clears throat> I, I have made a number of instruments, but especially recently I've been working with, um, sort of making interactive sound art sculptures using some of the same technology that, um, that these guys use for their controllers or their instruments. And, um, I've been working at Stanford for the last five years and helping with a, a class called human computer interaction for musical applications where people, um, are actually making controllers. Um, and so I've gotten to see a lot of People brainstorm in in terms of ways that they can create devices that can interact with the sound um, generating properties of a computer. Personally, uh, the things that really excite me about making objects as opposed to just writing software um, are the, the there are two elements. One one is that I really enjoy giving people a sense of wonder with sound. To me, um, uh, my friend Michael tells a story that. Uh, he can tell if a he has this theory that oh pardon me he, that he can tell if a person's gonna like weird computer music by shaking a piece of sheet metal in the baby's ear, and if they smile they're gonna like weird experimental music, and if they cry they probably won't. And um, I love sheet metal. I can just I, I use it a lot, and I like so pretend I pick it up. I wiggle it. Um, and you have any so, kids, Sasha? huh? You have any kids? Uh, no, no. Okay. Just, just but I've tried it with all my nieces and nephews, okay. and. I think they you know, they tend, they tend to like it. I'm I'm hopeful. I don't think it's really bearing out in reality. They they like Britney Spears, but whatever. Or they did, now they don't admit they like it. Um liked her. So so one is just this sense of the that like sound is beautiful to me and, and all sounds are beautiful most sounds are beautiful. There's only a couple of sounds I don't like in, in nature and in the world and um and so when I make objects I really want to make especially in sculptures, I want to make things that highlight that sense of play and wonder. And the other thing I want to do is sort of re-add the chaotic element. So the, the, the um, when you are exciting a sound in a computer, so often we use an impulse. And that impulse can be just a single, like, boom, you know, very clean and neat and tidy. Or it can be something a lot more complex. Um, So, pieces that I've done in the past... um, A few years ago, I did a large interactive musical playground. It was adult-sized. And it wasn't so much about um, giving the person control over the music as it was making this interactive, playful sculpture that musically interacted with the users. Um, And... Right now, I'm working on something that's, that sort of has to do with that idea of you add, of adding chaos back into the system. So it's two 55-gallon um, metal drums that are, um, that are vibrated at audio frequencies so that the entire drum becomes a giant audio speaker. And it adds a, a timbral element that you don't get out of regular speakers because you're getting vibration in the material as well as vibration throughout the air. And I'm exciting that with Another 55 gallon. Well, I'm doing various things with it. Sometimes I'm just sending audio, you know, from sound design software um, into it, and sometimes just recently I um, put another 55 gallon drum and created sort of like a feedback loop. So when you play it, it's almost you playing. When I've been playing it, when other people have been playing it, it almost looks like um, Taiko. I'm sorry. <laughs> Too many words, I'm forgetting them. Yeah, it, it almost looks like a person playing a taiko drum, but they're playing 55-gallon drums, and you're getting all of this feedback, and it sort of adds this chaotic, like, oh, no, is the instrument going to eat itself kind of quality. And um, so those are just some things that I'm interested in. I just, I just finished up a um, helping this artist named Trimpin. I don't know if you guys know his work. Uh, he's a fabulous artist, and I just finished working with him for a year at Stanford. And he, he also has that sense of play. He, he uses a lot of solenoids and sensors to create large sculptures that make sound and interact. Um, he makes music out of water droplets and fire. and I, I, I really found that sense of play very resonant.
1: Well, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's, do we have anything here that...
0: No, no, I didn't realize we could put things out in the front. Okay. But I, I think I think I'm gonna there's, have the barrels out at 100 Minna Street on um, the 30th of mm-hmm. September.
1: Yeah. When you mentioned, oh, oh go ahead. Okay.
0: Go. Well, yeah. Just just one other thing I'm doing that I just want to mention. Um, I've just finished up this sort of busking box, which is a wooden crate from 1911 that's a sort of self-contained audio thing, and so it's got two six-inch speakers and a 10-inch subwoofer, and it's all battery-powered and a mixer, so um, I'm trying to get the permits to play music down at Pier 39, and we've done it um, down in San Jose, and it was pretty amazing to see how people would walk up and respond to music that was fairly weird and respond favorably because it was in an environment where they expected to be amazed and wondered. Mm
1: Um, you, you mentioned this uh, notion of chaos, and uh, b- by that do you mean that uh, if you make a certain gesture towards your instrument, you might get one thing one time and something a different time? It's I
0: don't mean it that way. extremely, okay, but every time you pluck a string on a guitar, yeah, it's different.
1: It's different, true.
0: And and I think that that's sometimes what bothers people about com- music generated by, synth- by a computer and a non-analog synthesizer is that... There's this sort of like every time you hit that button it's the same it's the same and yeah. um, and so any way that you can add like some sort of physical vibration into it to to change it periodically, okay. I think it's valuable
1: uh, yeah, I would agree with that in particular that's a, but you know you can get over those thing. even using sample based instruments you can you can al- oh, yeah. you can always uh, up the variety it's just uh, lot more work
0: <laughs> well, yeah and you can use your controller to be the thing that, yes. so, that you know yeah. even if it's just volume changes
1: right well we're gonna you know uh, move through the speakers here and then um, we'll continue it with the time that we have remaining to have a discussion so I think hold uh, over
4: hey my name is mold um I'm a independent artist um I do performances and I DJ and I do workshops and lots of fun stuff. And I started building controllers uh, like this one, which is called the Mojo, Uh, because I'm also a guitar player and I studied guitar for a long time and um, I love playing guitar. And then when I started performing with electronic music, I had a hard time finding expressive instruments like guitars that would plug into my computer. So I wound up building one and I'm just going to demonstrate this for you guys real quick. So uh, it plays sounds. Thanks, Tom. And you can manipulate sounds. And you can do a lot of different things because every single sensor you have here is a different property of the sound. So you could take that sound and. So you could do that with all kinds of sounds. Thanks. And uh, so that's what I use to perform. Um, and I also uh, make these instruments I call jam boxes, or social music instruments. Um, and my friend Rich actually built, uh, built one of these and has it out in the lobby. His is called the Rematrix. The remix matrix, sorry, or three matrix. Um, so I started building these things about six years ago. Uh, I built one for Burning Man, which was a casual instrument as well as a jam box. And jam boxes are just you know multiplayer instruments. So um, the ones I make are like a bunch of these, kind of like hooked together, set up for one computer. And I have one called the Octamasher that I take to festivals and uh, colleges and parties. And I have one called the Cincomasher that I play shows with myself and other performers, kind of collaborate on this one, and one called the Mini Masher, which is made for kids. It's super simple, and um, yeah, it's kind of like an Exploratorium-level jam box. And um, uh, I, I just want to point out that I'm often associated with this term controllerism, which is a bastardization of the term turntablism, which is a bastardization of the term turntablist, as in one who plays a turntable as a musical instrument. And it's several steps removed, but um, I like using the word controllerism and controllerist as a way to kind of popularize the idea of using controllers and software as you know true musical instruments. And I think the other thing I wanted to mention is that I help uh, organize events here in the Bay Area with a group called Love Tech. So if you're interested in like other people who do this kind of thing, you can come check out Love Tech events, lovetech.org.
1: Great. Could you say a little bit about what's inside, and with the idea? I mean, this is a panel with a DIY in the title, so what if uh, someone out there wants to do this and build one of these things? You, just a tip or two, or a trip or two through the the what uh, what kind of expeditions do you have to do to get the, the stuff together to do this?
4: Yeah, um, well, this 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 wasn't that difficult. It wasn't exactly DIY because I had some help. Uh, with the metalwork and the woodwork and the electronics. Um, but you can go and buy uh, an electronic kit, electronics kit called the do-it-yourself MIDI controller. And it's a little circuit board with the USB jack and inputs for sensors like knobs, faders, and buttons. And you just kind of wire it up. So I don't have any electronic engineering background. I don't have any metal or woodworking skills to speak of. Um, I basically made drawings for this whole thing and got back parts. And I just soldered everything together. And I'm going to be publishing a video in a couple months, like open sourcing all the design documents that I created, and uh, going through the step-by-step process I used to create this instrument. Um, So this one, you know, the thing that makes it most uh, interesting or difficult to replicate is that it's it's built out of like metal and wood, which are, you know, more challenging to work with if you're building your own instrument. And that's about it. But all the other parts, you know, I will post part numbers and you can order them from the same catalog and they'll show up next week. Um, so it's never been easier. Um, also, I should mention there's great uh, resources like TechShop, which is uh, a place where you can get a membership for like $100 a month or something. And you get access to all these crazy rapid prototyping machines like laser cutters and, and plasma cutters. And and uh, I know Tim goes there, ShopBot. Um, so th- that's a place where if I had a membership, instead of like you know hiring my buddy to go cut the metal for me, like you could just go cut the metal yourself. You stick it in the machine, you press print. It's a little more complicated than that, but basically, you, you know, these days you can print, uh, print in metal and wood and three-dimensional plastic, chocolate.
1: Say something about about the uh, yeah.
4: That's Chocolate printing
1: I think they sell as many of those 3D printers To high end restaurants as they do to uh, Home (laughs) builders Say something about the Connection between uh, The physical interface itself and the software That runs it
4: Uh, Well again it's super simple It just uses MIDI MIDI over USB And um, this is This is really pretty much the same thing you could go by um, in, a, in a music store or a music retail place or whatever, uh, and the main differences are just that this one is built like with professional quality, and it's much harder to break. It's much easier to replace the parts, and there's a few sensors in it that you don't find elsewhere, like these these ribbon controllers or uh, or touch strips, as I call them. Can you get the sound? Back again. <laughs> Um, I, I went for sensors that are a little bit more expressive. These touch strips are, are kind of like uh, both on-off switches, and and then they modify something. So you can you can just articulate them in different ways and get much more musical expression. And the fact that there's like ten of them, and they're all sort of uh, matched up against uh, other kinds of sensors, you get all these little techniques where I use multiple fingers to grab like three things and get do a lot of expressive stuff. That, that doesn't really answer your question. Oh,
1: no, yeah, very much so. So, but you've got Ableton there, and you've got Max, and...
4: Yeah, it's just Ableton and Max running here, and um, uh, these are great software packages to get into right now because it seems like almost everyone has a copy of Ableton, and that's another way that I sort of publish my work is I share uh, Ableton sets and Max patches, and um, so you can download the software patch for this thing. For my website.
5: Great.
1: Well, uh, I think lots to say about, it, but very impressed. One maybe question that we can uh, reverberate on later. In I saw the uh, jam set up. What's it called again out out there? It's uh, re matrix. Yeah, and I, I thought it was very cool. And uh, and then I'm listening to this. And one thing I'm struck by in, in these two is that the the actual rhythmic. Pulsation is handled by the device, and I just would like some comments on you know whether you want to take care of that yourself or not, like how just i iso- just let's just say you're playing some tempo and you would determine the tempo yourself versus letting the machine
4: determine the tempo
1: Any yeah well,
4: well it's a question I think we were talking about earlier, which is this kind of like are you uh I think of it as a, are you like a player in the orchestra or are you the conductor and I think that has transformed in the last few decades where everybody wants to be a conductor and not as many people want to be a uh a, a player of notes um and it, from the standpoint of an electronic musician or whatever you want to call me like it's kind of a role i'm I'm thrust into because you need to sort of compete with um you know uh well it's there's a lot of shows if I was to generalize all the things I do and call them all shows, it'd be hard to play a lot of them you know with a guitar and my voice, which is kind of what I grew up doing um, so you know using playback from uh, a computer and being more of a conductor you know allows me to create more sound and sound like I have an orchestra or a band or whatever you want to call it and um I could still bring a lot of the same performance aesthetic as a solo performer and have the the, the fullness of, of of, sonic richness that we're used to from recordings.
2: There's a couple levels of timing control that you can give over to the computer. Um, the, a lot of people immediately go to loops where you're giving control over not only the timing of the notes, but also the sequence of the notes. Um, in the stuff I've done lately, I've... Preferred to quantize the timing of individual notes, but the choice of the notes and the sequencing of them is up to the individual. So I think of that kind of instrument as as making use of time frets, same way that, you know, on a difference between a a fretless guitar and a pitched guitar or a fretted guitar, you've got frets to help you stay on pitch. Instruments, it's possible to have your timing fretted as well, but that doesn't mean you have to give control over the entire sequence. Mm -hmm. So there's a continuum there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I have often tried to make an analogy between, uh, the idea, I call it dipping. That is, just imagine that there's a stream underneath and all kind of fish going by you and uh, they're running on different tempi and what you're doing is you're going down into the stream and grabbing them when you want them, uh, which is, I think, what what you talk about with the quantized, time quantized right. thing. And But they don't all have to be on the same um, grid. They can have expressive delays associated with them and so on. But uh, So you, you make them loud and soft or bring them in and out in terms of uh, how deep you push down in maybe by area or by uh, pressure into into the stream. So, yeah, I, I, it's a very interesting situation that we're in today because we don't, you know, acoustic musicians, for the most part, are in a situation where it's kind of like one gesture, one note, and here we're in a single gesture that can control, as a conductor does, a massive amount of material. The thing that really makes me run, though, is that if I don't touch the instrument, it doesn't do anything. So it's silent. So I'm personally not interested so much in automatic pilot instruments. But that's another, that's another thing we can discuss. Well, maybe Bart, here's something from you and then we'll discuss more and take yes. questions from the audience,
3: of course. I'm Bart Hopkin. Uh, For many, many years, I published something called Experimental Musical Instruments, which was a quarterly journal. In contrast to most of what we've been hearing here, its orientation was primarily towards acoustic instruments. But so for all these years, uh, it was like every time somebody had a really cool idea for something to do in terms of designing a musical instrument, I would usually hear about it sooner or later, and then I would try and convince this person that they really should write an article for Experimental Musical Instruments. So all this stuff flowed past my desk. It It was a great thing. It also... Uh, was hard to sustain financially and stuff, so it didn't last forever. Experimental musical instruments as an organization still exists, and we've done a lot of books and CDs about who's doing what, who built what, uh, and also how-to, a lot of how-to books, including one sort of generalized one called Musical Instrument Design, and other ones, how to make marimba-like instruments, how to make wind chimes, which is very popular on uh, uh, Amazon because it's the most one that anybody could do, and, and more obscure stuff as well. So I have all that sort of having passed through my history. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to notice that in this discussion, the word gesture has come up probably more than almost any other instrument, uh, almost any other word, which is significant. In all the years that I was working with all these different instruments, I found that uh, what really stuck with me about instruments was what it looked like to play them, what it felt like to play them, uh, almost more than what notes people played. So, and, and by the way, you know, I'm the one representative of acoustic stuff here today. Uh, Sung Kim, who was supposed to be with us, is not here. He does some wonderful stuff, but he's not here. But I, I do think that this is really true, that, that um, the electronic world and the digital world and the acoustic world are miles apart in some ways. They have a lot in common, obviously, because we're all making music together. And it's really interesting to see that the idea of gesture has become so central in electronic instruments. And with the acoustic instruments... Gesture happens whether you like it or not. So I was encouraged to bring some instruments. I brought some.
0: I love this one.
3: If, if, now, you know, reeds sometimes squeak if you don't properly what you read and stuff. <laughs> So this is a, a clarinet. That, thank you. A, a, a pretty simple definition of clarinet is it has a single reed like a saxophone or a clarinet, uh, but the tube is cylindrical unlike a saxophone. This is a clarinet. Uh, what's happening here, I don't know if you can see very well, but there's an open slit all along here. And when you uh, press this down, it's as if you were covering some tone holes. It's covering the portion of the slit from here to here. So you have so, uh, something that's hard to achieve. A, pitch control system that's continuous, but can also be quite discreet if you choose to play it like this as opposed to glissing all over the place. You can play fairly discreetly without glissing if you choose to. Um, One of the main tricks of this is uh, clarinet players should be looking at this and saying, but gee, isn't it leaky? How come it's not squealing all over the place? Because does this really seal off that well up here? You could be saying if you're a clarinet player. Um, And the reason it doesn't is uh, this is a magnetic Flexible magnet strip, and this is steel. So, and this is pretty carefully machined to be smooth. So when you press here, it seals quite nicely up here. Otherwise, it wouldn't work.
1: You know, it's, it, it, You know, the electronic musician in me makes me want to put a pressure sensing sensor along the strip as well.
3: <laughs> you can, and, and draw a signal from it and do lots of stuff at once. <laughs> yes. So this is uh, um, something that I think most of you know. You know, you c- If you have a corrugated tube and you set up uh, the air running through the tube quickly enough um, and the air is sort of bumping over the corrugations in the tube, uh, it will start setting up standing waves at the frequency corresponding to the length of the tube. Uh, and that means that... Um, as you blow faster and faster and the air bumps over these corrugations, it doesn't, the pitch doesn't gradually ri- rise. It's biased in favor of the f- the frequencies that are inherent in the tube, and it will be harmonic, meaning it will produce the pitches of the harmonic series because a cylindrical tube is close enough to harmonic. Um, so this is just a set of four of these tubes, corrugated tubes, and I control the pitch by blowing softer or harder or faster or slower, in effect. Uh, and... Because they produce a harmonic series, which is an incomplete scale, I put four of them together in a sort of interlocking way in order to let me create a complete scale. And One of the things I like about this, the tone by itself is a pretty simple whistle and not all that interesting, but it loves uh, certain kind of musical <coughs> gestures, to use that word again. It has certain kinds of sounds it likes to do, these sort of bird whistle kinds of floating around sounds. and. And I like them. So that's why I like this thing. <laughs> oh. uh, this one I didn't mention is called Mo, apostrophe M-O-E, short for Chalumeau, which is uh, an ancestor of the clarinet. This one is called uh, branching Kuruga horn, because that's what it is, a Kuruga horn with several branches. This one's called Savart's Wheel. Uh, yeah. Signal to noise isn't so good. for sentimental old songs (laughs) like that. Can you see what's going on with this? We've got um, this cylinder with... uh, These are ridged surfaces. Uh, uh, Think think of this as being actually... uh, It's not a cylinder. It's not a cone either. Think of this as being a collection of disks of graduated size stuck together. Um, Around this external edge of each disk is a a set of ridges. And uh, the larger the disk is, the more ridges go by per second when it's turning. And the arithmetic's pretty simple for calculating how, what the diameters of the discs should be in order to get the right number of bridges going by per second on each disc to get a, a roughly chromatic scale. This is actually a very great instrument because it's a, good, it's a good demonstration instrument. It's a good classroom instrument. It has a lovely tone, as you can hear. <laughs> and, it, um, and also, it's very interesting to think about waveforms with this instrument because the way that this plectrum type edge here is riding over these ridges is in a rough way shaping the waveform and you get the the waveform is projected out into the air. This essentially is a plectrum, this is essentially a soundboard, the styrofoam cup, and it's sending something out into the air and it's a very, very angular waveform which you can get just by thinking, well, how would that thing bump over the ridges? It creates a really angular waveform and you get a suitably angular kind of sound out of it. Okay, I'll
1: stop there. Wow, I wonder what Ben Franklin would have thought of that. You may have seen the glass harmonica that he did, which is very much like this. It's it's configured of very
3: similarly. A bunch
1: of concentric bowls, and then they're rotating in water. What an antidote to that glass harmonica sound. <laughs> <laughs>
3: no, <laughs> if it, it's, you think know, about it, it's configured much the same. Gesturally, it's very similar. In terms of the sound-producing mechanism, it's completely quite different, different. Quite different.
1: Yeah. Uh, interesting. So, have you thought about the connection between the acoustic world and the electronic world?
3: You know, when I was a kid, uh, um, electric guitar was just starting to come into its own, and a big thing was distortion. Mm-hmm. You overdrive your preamp, and you um, you know you get these. V- clipped waveforms and you know they're they're very very angular and uh and you and then you got all the girls. You know? So well you know I'm not Jimi Hendrix but I can do angular waveforms. You know? So yeah there's a, there's a connection there. You know?
0: okay.
3: Interesting. How's that
0: working for
3: you? Uh, well, yeah.
1: well you know there are a number of, of people who've wanted to also augment instruments, traditional instruments with oh, yeah. electronics in different ways. We, we haven't really spent much time on that, but uh, there are some very interesting things that can be done. Um, and this sort of focus on, on one issue that we might want to talk about is, do we really need to worry about the sort of the, all the motor skills that go into performing a traditional instrument and then try to make our electronic instrument in some sense leverage those skills? That's a question that people ask. Well, that's why the keyboard in some sense is successful as an electronic controller because it leverages the keyboard skills. But what else might we think about and is that a reasonable thing to
4: want to do? Um, I think it's reasonable but it's not something we should tie ourselves to. Like that's something that really appeals about some of the instruments I saw at the last summit here, um, like the Continuum you know, which is laid out like a keyboard and looks like a keyboard. And Roger Lin's uh, instrument, which is the first layout he showed me was the same as a guitar, like a grid tuned in fourths, so all the shapes I know on guitar work on this multi-touch surface. Um, but I think that's why a lot of the electronic instruments that are widely available are really stale, is that they're all based on... Uh, either a keyboard interface or like early drum machines where you have 16 rubber pads and a grid and the sort of perpetuation of legacy uh, human interfaces I don't think is is really helpful for um, pushing things forward.
1: Yeah.
0: And more and more of the people that are making electronic music haven't been studying guitar or piano or traditional instruments for 10 years before they tackle electronic music.
1: Tim, you
2: have something to say about that? Uh, Well... The violin is is notoriously difficult to learn, and I question whether that is a good thing. And it seems like instruments that we create should be easier to learn than the violin. Um, and so you can do that by having the electronics, you know, assist you in keeping on pitch if you want to keep on pitch, and so on. So I, I think you want instruments that are expressive but not difficult. To learn, you, you shouldn't, we should make them easier to manipulate. Um.
1: Yeah, I would really agree with that very much. But at the same time, not, I, think I said it before, I'll probably say it again and again no limit on virtuosity. In other words, low entry fee, but no ceiling. And I think a lot of the instruments that we see that are commercially available are new things, are maybe low threshold to get started, but easily
2: bored. And that's largely that's because of the lack of continuous yeah. control. Yeah. In yeah.
1: Well, I think we've, we've got about 10 minutes or so, or 15, and it's time to open it up to the audience, and I think we'll get some interesting questions to make
5: us think. Yes. Hi. My name's Muka Rennick, and I'm from Prairie Sun Recording Studios in uh, Sonoma County, and uh, I've worked with BART's Instruments uh, in depth. Um, with a recording artist about ten years ago, um, from the EMI, and I also work with a lot of artists today that uh, work with controllers, and I think expression is all relative, and I also think that i mean what what Bart and his cadre is are doing are they're building instruments. Uh, I worked with this one artist who had a he had a carpenter outside of the recording studio. And he had all these parts and all these things—wood, metal, and everything—and he would just have him build instruments, just like he had the budget, of course, back then. Yeah. He would just have build instruments, and then we would record them. And uh, and I, I think you know that it, the, the democracy of the electronic thing—I think it's going to evolve where there's more of a fusion uh, between the two. And I'd like to hear anybody's comments on on what I'm talking about because I think expression is, is just in the uh, ear or eye of the beholder you know what
2: makes you happy the, the problem with electronic <laughs> instruments is a lot of them are based on switches that are just on or off so you have there's no control you have other than on or off and that's very debilitating in in your expressiveness but as
5: i understand you're you're breaking ground in terms of yeah. how much pressure how much area you have to express with your hand it's getting better and better those
2: instruments are unusual nowadays the, mm. the ubiquitous grid controller the monom and things like that They're literally just all switches, so um, it's rarer than you would think to have expressive controllers.
3: I I still think we're moving in a good direction on that.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. But, um, you know, here we are in a situation where it's not the musical instrument industry any longer giving us the tools to build instruments, but it's... Software companies, computer companies, Microsoft gives us Kinect, right? Uh, Magic Pad, the continuous controller stuff, the iPad, the, uh, these things are coming out of that world. Um, that's, a, that's a big switch. Um, it looks like things like OSC, which we're very invested in, uh, Open Sound Control, which is a protocol, that's going to end up being in uh, the AVB standard, not it's not going to come out of the music industry. Either. It's going to come out of the computer industry instead. So it's, it's a curious switch uh, in how, who's setting things up for, for the music, musical instrument world.
0: And sensors are so much more available because of robotics. Like, you know, well not, the, not the video game controllers, but a lot of those sensors that Moldova's using are, come out of SparkFun, which makes most of their money off of robotics yeah. people.
1: Well, and also just hobbyists who want to build things, uh, uh, controllers of various kinds. I mean, it's fascinating the way, I mean, just the amount of demand that we get in, in the university to do things with, uh, you know, tinsies and, I mean, the whole microcontroller stuff, uh, w- which are, you know, they're very very easy to have access to. And, and uh, the amount of uh, electronic knowledge that one needs to put them together is... You know, much it's, they're much less difficult than they used to be. In fact, you know, the whole the USB controller is all there. You don't have to, in fact, write the software to do it. And um, you know, there's another there's a question that's been uh, haunting me, in particular, at this particular conference, which is a. I mean, from what I've been able to notice so far, that a lot of what's going on here is about the internet, about music distribution, about <laughs> music information retrieval, if you will, about, you know, making playlists uh, and that sort of thing. And so we have this cloud element uh, in the thing. And we look at the instrument builders on this panel and others, and if you look around, they're doing things with laptops, mobile devices. And uh, so it's on the client side of the computing world. And in the instrument world, I don't see yet any new connections being formed between the cloud on the one hand. And the client, and I think this is a very uh, potentially a very interesting thing to be thinking about. Uh, that is, my personal fantasy is let's have a big mashup engine. You know, so I don't want to use samples; I want to use analyzed data that it's going to be available in massive farm out in the cloud, and I want to bring it down into my my world on the client, where I'll do not just simple sample playback, but rather do things like with face vocoders, do things with other um, synthesis algorithms that give me uh, a lot of expressive control over how long things take and what precise pitches they may, might have and so on. So I'm imagining um, this kind of connection between the client and the cloud through
4: this notion of
1: help me make giant mashups. I don't know. Anyone want to comment on that? Or? I-
4: I just wanted to comment that I've seen a few uh, really interesting uses of the internet as like a compositional medium or like yeah. crowdsourcing yeah, audio, right. like uh, like I think through you was this YouTube mashup where they just had a bunch of YouTube players on one web page, but they were all tuned to the same scale or something. You just hit play on different videos. I saw somebody who did something really elaborate where they had like hundreds of people saying all the parts to. Uh, to a large choral composition. They did this 3D rendering of all the videos of all these people, seeing all the parts in, like, globes. There's a globe representing each continent, and those were different parts of the chorus, and the composer was in the middle, and it was kind of egomaniacal. Does anybody know what that... Do you know what it's called, or where people can find it? Search for egomaniacal choral YouTube yeah. mashup.
1: Yeah, well, there's certainly the, the kind of thing that Go Wang is doing at Shmuel with uh, Ocarina and... Uh, uh, where the social computing aspect is right integrated into the instrument design, and uh, I think that it's a sort of a fascinating way to move. Uh, another question: yeah. I'm wondering what comes to mind um, for anybody thinking about more direct translation, thinking about instruments. As a tool, a medium to take inspiration, take emotion, feeling, sentiment, and put it out in the form of vibration and form of sound. So what sort of developments, you know, to directly translate that sort of inspiration, directly translate, like, rate of heartbeat or, like, you know, temperature of the body or movements of dance. Like all those, and sort of um, sidestep. Or make a smoother transition through that medium, and not have as much filter, you know, between the inspiration
2: and what comes out.
3: I've run into cases of people doing biometrics into music, into sound, in various ways. But unfortunately, I, I, I'm not remembering, you know, oh, go here or go there. I, mm-hmm. But I have run into a few cases of people doing it. How yeah, well, there's
1: do? a, you know, there's a big history of that in the '60s. Uh, people like David Rosenboom and Don Buchla and a number of people were using EEG and other bio, biometric measurements to control things. Uh, controls maybe a, a bit of an exaggeration because one of the problems with these techniques is that they uh, don't afford very precise control. Um, it's kind of like... Um, I often thought of it as... Imagine you tie up your arms and your tongue and all these things, and then you make yourself drive the car with your nose on the steering wheel.
0: I think, yeah, I think what you're talking about is the fact that, like, to actually control your heart rate or your EEG waves. A student in my class last year just did something that where the she was monitoring EEG waves because you can actually, there's these commercially available headphones for a couple hundred dollars that can pick that up. And the, the thing is that... Yeah, the thing is that... Um, we don't like have a good way to tell if human beings how human beings feel, you know, and so if we're measuring just body rates, if you want to have any control over what's coming out, you really have to sit very still usually in most of these applications, and so they do kind, of, you know, the, the, the pieces that I've seen that do use these sort of biometric elements, people are sitting very still, and and that's requ- almost like a state of meditation to control those things. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's
1: a, it, one of the fellows that. Uh, in Belfast, there's a musical research center there. His name is Ben Knapp, and he's been working with these kinds of ideas a lot. I mean, let's, let's measure emotion. Let's use various physiological indicators of it and then try to map those onto uh, sound material. And the works I've heard of his are typically very meditative, very, very, uh, let's say, uh,
2: slowly evolving. Yeah. But the, the other thing he mentioned was using dance, yeah, and well, you have course, complete yeah. control and that, yeah. with the Kinect now as a, as a sensor, that world is going to explode in, in potential for, for instrument creation. Yeah. So that's a really exciting area.
4: Yeah, so um, how does this microphone work? Oh, okay, uh, that's not, not the question. Um, so your instrument seems to be like a score. That you're creating a new score. It's uh, Moldova has a score, which is how these buttons. Um, Tim is mentioning uh, making it accessible. Well, I think that's probably because actually the customer, I mean, the user is is part of the piece, right? Even designing something for the cloud is that well, that's one huge performance. And so, to what extent are you folks composers?
2: A lot. To a large extent. My goal is to not be a composer.
4: I was going to say it's a blurry line. You know, when I was writing music for my last album, a lot of what I was doing was, like, building a modular synthesizer to make the sound that I wanted, and that's kind of like building an instrument. And these days that's a very common part of composition is, like, designing a sound, designing an instrument. So it's hard to use those labels effectively, I think.
1: Well, I... I, uh... I like to use the term composing instruments, uh, and there's a certain amount of ambiguity in that. It means that on the one hand, designing the instruments as if you know you're composing in some sense their behavior, but then it's also nice to have the instrument inspire your own composing by doing some automatic things that might suggest new places to go, but no, I think that Typically composers have paid a lot of attention to the timeline, but when you're working with an instrument, you're paying attention to the layout, to the representation of the material, to the access that you have the material and so on. And those those are very much acts of composition and design. Well thank you very much, everyone.
4: Thank you.